You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. There is a perpetual temptation that's probably present for most people. It's at least present for the people of God. And when I say perpetual, I mean this goes way back and it continues to be a thing for us even now. How far back does it go? It goes all the way back to the garden. And what is the temptation? It is the temptation to go back. Because when Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, a guard was placed, an angel with a pretty serious sword, we're told, to keep them from yielding to the temptation to go back into the place where God had now exiled them from. Adam and Eve, God expected to face the, attempt, the temptation to go back. Later in the Old Testament, after God delivered His people from slavery in Egypt, you would think they would be immensely grateful. You would think they would be ready for the future that He has for them. you think they would be fully given to whatever He has. And yet they get out into the wilderness. They leave slavery. They get into the wilderness. Things get kind of challenging. Maybe they're a little bit thirsty. They're kind of hungry. God's providing for them. But it's not what they had back in Egypt. Let's go back. Better to be slaves and have a full belly than die of hunger in the wilderness. Temptation to go backwards. I remember all through uh, high school, college, even seminary, and afterwards to some degree in the contemporary, in the modern church, and I think I was even susceptible to this at times, so we sort of hold the New Testament church, the first century church, up as this golden age, and it's all been downhill from there. And sometimes you'll hear pastors say, we just need to get back to the New Testament church. And I think I agreed with that for a while. I've given up on that to some degree. It may surprise you, but hear me out. Because the New Testament church, for one thing, was a mess. (laughs) Have you ever read 1 Corinthians? I'm glad that the issues they dealt with are not things I have to deal with pastorally. It was a disaster in some ways there. All through the New Testament, the church is dirty and messy and conflicted, and they're dealing with things And one of the things that we're supposed to discover when we go back to the New Testament is that Jesus is carrying His church forward. He's always carrying His church forward. When Paul writes to the churches that he planted and other churches in the New Testament, his focus is on what Jesus will do. Who Jesus will rescue through their ministry. The new creation that is coming. The resurrection that is coming for them. He doesn't want them to try to go backwards to some past ideal time. He wants them to go forward. And we can sympathize with that. I mean, we know what that feels like because for 15 months now, we've been wanting to go back, haven't we? (laughs) 
We wanted to go back to times before people were wearing masks all over the place. And now we're grateful that that's a little bit more chill than it was. And we've been wanting to go back to when we weren't afraid to gather in a single room. And we've been wanting to go back to when we could actually show up at a restaurant and there were people there to, you know, work. <laughs> we want to go back. But if we're paying attention to the Scriptures, all through cover to cover, and especially Haggai, we need to hear the warning that God is not inviting His people to go backwards. God is not inviting His people to regress. He's not inviting them to live in the past. That does not mean they don't honor the past. Let me say that again. He's not inviting them to live in the past, but that doesn't mean they don't honor the past. We come to Haggai, and that tension between where we are now and where we used to be, and things aren't so good now, and they were a whole lot better back then, can't we just have that again? And Haggai has a word for them about the dangers of that and a corrective for what God actually wants them to do. It includes honoring the past. After all, God is a God who has worked in their past. God is going to remind them of the past. He's going to remind them of His promises. He's going to remind them of the glory of the temple just 60, 70 years ago, 80 years ago. But He's also going to remind them that they've got to be able to honor that without living in it. And He's going to help them understand that the people of God honor the past best by putting their mission first. Let's put that in our context. We honor the past best by putting our mission first. How do we get there? We read Haggai chapter 2. It's about a month and 20 or so days after Haggai chapter 1. It's a busy time for the priests. Some of their most significant festivals are happening in this period, in this month. Things are going crazy. They appear to have resumed constructing, reconstructing the temple. Maybe they've got the altar going. It looks like that's happening from Ezra chapter 3. He's got kind of some of the historical background there. And so some of the, the sacrifices have resumed. And maybe the temple hasn't been rebuilt in all of its glory, but they've got some kind of an altar going on and they can do some of the liturgical acts that they were commanded to do. But they are discouraged. And they're battling, well, they may not even be battling at this moment, they're giving into it, aren't they? They're giving into discouragement because the thing that they've built and the festivals that they're engaging in aren't even remotely as glorious as they were before the exile, before they were forcefully taken from their own land into Babylon, and the temple, with all of its gold and glory, was destroyed. And so you've got these folks who, decades later have come back 
and they started rebuilding the temple, and maybe they were excited to begin with, and you know, we remember what it was like, and we can get this going again, and we've got some resources that were sent back with us, and we can, we can put that to it, and, and then you can just imagine as the work goes on after a while, it can become very discouraging. Maybe you've had a project, and you're really excited about this project, you got your supplies together, and you got the things you needed, and it was fundable, or it was funded, and everything was ready to go, and then the project got on, and some things happened you weren't expecting, that's the story of my life. I think I'm going to fix something, and then something happens, and it's a mess, and it ends up, I have to call one of you to help me. But you're going, and you're excited, and then one thing happens, all right, we can overcome this, a little adversity, it's all right, go a little bit more, something else happens, all right, not so sure about this one, we're going to keep trying, something else happens, and all of a sudden, discouragement sets in, and you just, that's it, no more. That happens in our personal lives. It also happens in the life of the church, doesn't it? I mean, rewind 15, 16 months ago, we were feeling pretty good about things. Beginning of 2020. It's going to be a big year for Hope Hole UMC. God's doing amazing things. Lots of fruitfulness. People are growing deeper. The church is growing wider. Good things are happening. March 15th, the only people in the room are me and a couple of folks behind computers back there. And discouragement sets in. We have those initial moments where we're like, all right, we can do this. Give it a few weeks. It'll be fine. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll kind of two, three, four weeks, everything will be back to normal. And we'll just kind of hold over and we'll learn a few things while we're at it. We can pivot and we can do this. We got great people. And then three months later, the world is different. And it will never be the same. So we experience this, don't we? Like we can identify with them. They looked at the meager altar and foundation that they had constructed, and they looked back at the way it was before it was torn down, and they feel the weight of this massive discouragement. And God's up here asking rhetorical questions. Speak now, Haggai, to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, and say, verse 3, who is left among you that saw this house in its former glory? And you can imagine several of them going, I remember that. I remember the glory days. I remember what it used to be like. I remember the thing that was built by King Solomon himself. Next question, how does it look now? Do we even have to answer that question? Is it even comparable? No. It doesn't compare. You can imagine kind of ruins still laying around the edge. And they've cleared off a little bit of space and they've tried to kind of let's redo the foundation and let's get the, the altars, this important place where we can offer God the sacrifices that he's called for, that he deserves. Who is left among you that saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Is it not in your sight as nothing? How did they see their new project? How did they see their new work? How did they see the energy and the resources and the gold and the silver that they were putting into this new 
building project, it was in their sight as nothing. Why? Because they were living in the past. They were living in the past. Don't you remember what it used to be like? Don't you remember how lovely everything was? Don't you remember every year about this time when people would make their pilgrimages and bring their sacrifices and the temple courtyard was bustling and there were pilgrims and worshipers and and people were here and we saw people we hadn't seen. It was almost like homecoming or something. (laughs) We saw people we hadn't seen in a while. And here we are again, and it's good, and we remember what it was like, and we have these deep feelings of joy. And now we get up and we come look now to offer our sacrifices on an altar surrounded by rubble. You just feel the weight of that, can't you? And Haggai. has a word for them, doesn't he? Verse 4, take courage, Zerubbabel. Take courage, Joshua. Take courage, all you people. All you people of this land, says the Lord, and work. Really, God? Can't you just sort of let us cry on your shoulder for a while? We're doing the pity party thing over here. We remember what it used to be like. We're having a moment. You really want us to get up the shovels again and pull out the tools and work and be courageous? Can't you tell that we're just not ready for that right now? Why do you want us to do that? It's a lost cause. And here's God's answer. Work because I am with you. What will sustain you in your discouragement? Not the loveliness of this building, but the presence of the Creator God. What will sustain sustain you in your moments of discouragement? Not the rubble that's piled around the edges, but the absolute, unquestioned, faithful presence of the God who has made covenant with you. And what does He want? He wants you to work. And why does He want you to work? Because He's about to do something crazy. Listen to it again. Work, for I am with you, says the Lord God of hosts. The Lord of hosts. Verse 5. According to the promise that I made with you when I came out of Egypt. He doesn't want them to forget the past. He wants them to remember it. Remember what I did for you. You were slaves in a land not your own. I brought you out of Egypt. I gave you my covenant. I made my promises. Back then, you were tempted to go back, just like now. Pay attention, God says. Remember that I'm faithful and watch for what I'm about to do. That's what God says to the people through Haggai. Remember my faithfulness and watch what I'm about to do. 
I'm with you, says the Lord of hosts, according to the promise that I made you when you came out of Egypt. My Spirit abides among you, so don't fear. Notice you've got this positive command. Take courage and work. And then you've got the negative command. Don't be afraid. You need courage. You don't need fear. You are discouraged and afraid. Be encouraged and don't fear. And here's why. Thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 6. Once again, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And you say, well, God, what else is there? And that's kind of the point, isn't it? That's everything. Heavens, earth, sea, dry land. God is preparing to shake it all up. I will shake the nations for this purpose so that the treasure of all nations shall come and I will fill this house with splendor. Now, we need to set what Haggai says on God's behalf to the people in context of the Bible's big picture, don't we? And anytime God says something about reaching the nations, we remember a promise he made to Abraham way back in Genesis. God says to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to give you a family, and your family is going to be filled with people from every nation, and you're going to be a blessing to all the nations. From the start, God chose one family, Abraham's family, for the purpose of being his way in to the world, for the purpose of blessing all the nations. God, from the start, was not solely interested in a single family. He was interested in all the families. All the families he had passed over to pick Abraham, he was going to use Abraham to reach. So he picks this one family. He says, I'm going to use you to reach everybody else. I'm going to use you to reach the nations. I want to bring the nations into my joy. And I want you to be my instrument. I want your family to be my agent. And chances are they'd kind of forgotten about that because when you get discouraged, it's very easy to forget the things God has promised. So God reminds them of His promise. Remember how I brought you out of Egypt? Remember my desire to flood the nations with my perfect love and to use you as the funnel, as the pipeline to do that. Remember that. And know that even though this place is a mess and it doesn't look anything like it used to look, know that I'm going to take all of that. I'm going to take all your history. I'm going to take all your work. I'm going to take all the past. I'm going to take my promises. I'm going to take your effort. I'm going to take all the energy and I'm going to gather it up and I'm going to fulfill the mission through you. But you, people of God, will not be able to live into that if you are living in the past. And so they've got to learn that God 
loves the past. He loves them. He made promises. He's committed to the promises. Those things are there and they are good and they are to be honored, but they are not honored by trying to go back. They are honored by going forward. And it's true for Haggai. It's true for us. We honor the past best by putting the mission first. That's what they're being called to do. You want to honor Solomon's temple? Remember what it was made for, a house of prayer for all the nations, and quit moping around and get to work bringing the nations to worship the one God. You want to honor the pre-exile generation and all of the work they did and all of the sacrifices they offered? Get to work bringing the nations back to this place. You can't do that if you're living 70 years ago. You can only do it if you remember what God has done and trust He'll do more. We honor what He has done before. They honor the past. They honor the temple. They honor the building. They honor the people by living into the purposes of the building and the gathered people, and that is to bring the glory of the name of the Most High God to the nations, and to bring the nations to know the Most High. It's their sole purpose. That is their sole purpose for existing. He has called them, and he has called us to make sure our neighbors and the nations know him. It's crucial for them to realize that even sacred places can become distractions. Sacred spaces can become idols. The temple is sacred space, isn't it? This is holy ground. This has been set aside for the worship of the one God exclusively. And the one God wants to use it as headquarters to reach the nations. The thing is, while they're moping around about the lack of glory in the building project, what's the one thing they're not doing? They're not declaring God's glory among the nations or their neighbors. And so that's the call, isn't it? You want to honor the past, God says? You remember the glory beforehand? You remember how amazing it was? You remember when the temple was filled with children running around having a great time? And you remember when uh, you could hear the smells of worship and hear the smells, smell the smells of worship, hear the sounds of worship, and all of those things. You remember that and you have it, you love it. It was good and it was right and it was glorious. How do you honor those people? How do you honor your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents? How do you honor your forefathers in the faith? You continue the mission. You always continue the mission, and that's what they are being called to do. This house is a place for the nations to worship the one God. It's very hard for the people of God to be unquestionably committed to that when we are worried about 
how things aren't like they used to be. Isaiah. Haggai is calling upon the people of God after a crisis to re-engage mission. You want a vital experience of God's presence? Re-engage your mission. You want a vital experience of worship? Re-engage the mission. You want to honor the people who were there, who worked, who gave, who sacrificed, who did all of that? Honor the mission. Be committed to the mission. It's also crucial to remember that the power for the mission depends on the power of God. It's always important when we're reading Scripture to pay attention to who gets the verbs. And notice God doesn't say, hey, break out of it, folks. You've got to shake the nations. (laughs) He says, I will shake the nations. He doesn't say, hey, break out of it. You've got to go get them and bring them to me. He says, I will bring the treasure of the nations to this place. God desires to work through his people, but he is the one who gives the mission its power. He's the one who gives the mission its effectiveness. He's the one who gives it whatever it is that makes it work. Pastors do not have the power to make it work. The laity does not have the power to make it work. None of us have enough money. None of us have enough intellect. None of us are such good strategists that we can accomplish this without the presence and power of God. None of us. And so, so what's our posture? Our posture is to gaze upon the face of the God who loves us, who calls us. Our posture is not to just kind of work for the sake of duty while I'm here and I've got to do it and I don't really want to, but it's the important thing. They are being invited to embody the passions of God, aren't they? God doesn't say, I called you, you're my people, get to work. It's your duty. What does he say? In a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake the nations so that the treasure of all the nations shall come, and I will fill this house with splendor, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The latter splendor of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give prosperity, says the Lord of hosts. In this text you get a glimpse of God's passions. Always helpful when we're reading the scriptures to go right here in these few verses. What does God care about? What does he want to do? He wants his people to embody his character to the nations. He wants his people to be flooded with self-giving, other-oriented love. He wants his people to not worry about 
whether or not they have what it takes to get the job done. He wants his people to put their eyes on him. And when they do, he will work through them. And he will make it effective. And you get, a, you get this, just this recurring, I will do this, and I will do that, and I will do this, and I will do that. Don't you see what God is committed to? Don't you see what He desires to do? Don't you see what drives Him? He's not like the slave masters in Egypt. Do your duty. Do your work. Do your job. And if you don't do it well, we'll make it even harder so you can learn your lesson. God is not like that. I think we think God is like that sometimes. Some of us. Do it right or else. God comes to us and says, you don't have what it takes. Newsflash. We don't have what it takes. The question is, are we surrendered to the one who does? So we see his passions. And the command to work is a command to allow what God cares about most to consume us. The command to take courage and to work toward the mission, towards the original purposes of this temple, to reach, to be a, light, a shining light to the nations. Salt of the earth, as it has been said. <laughs> Is to see what God cares about and to allow Him by His grace to reproduce those cares, those priorities, those passions in us. And what does He care about? He cares about the nations experiencing the beauty of His glory. Therefore, as the psalmist said, let the nations be glad and rejoice. We honor the past best by putting the mission first. When I read this, I can't help but think about the last words spoken by Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. There's two key phrases that just pull everything in my brain and heart towards the future. Maybe you picked up on them. You've got that phrase we've talked about a lot, all nations. What does Jesus say? Disciple all the nations. And what does He promise? He promises. He promises exactly what Haggai says. In chapter 2, verse 4, I'm with you. I'm sending you out to bring my glory to the nations and you will be able because I am with you forever to the end all the time. Jesus wants his people 
to remember where we've come from and to honor that. A lot of faithful people have plowed the ground for a long time. A lot of people have made sacrifices. A lot of people have worked. A lot of people have given everything they've got. To the work of the church around the world, to the work of this church, you probably have some names rolling through your heads, don't you? How do we honor them? We honor them by building on what they started. We honor them by building on the foundation that has been laid. We honor them by putting the mission first, don't we? When I think about some of the men who loved me like a father after my father passed away at my home church, Trinity in Opelika. When I think about the energy that they poured into me and the love that they offered to me and the counsel that they gave to me and the wisdom that they gave and offered anyway, whether I took it's a different question. I think about my pastors. I think about my Sunday school teachers. I think about my parents. I think about my grandparents. How can I honor what they gave me for the last 40 years? Take courage. Work, says the Lord. I am with you. My spirit abides among you. Do not be afraid. I will shake the heavens, I will shake the earth, I will shake the sea, I will shake the dry land, I will shake the nations. I honor the people who gave so much to me by using what they gave me to make sure the nations, our neighbors and the nations, get the thing that gives life and that, brothers and sisters, is the gospel. I honor the people who formed me. You will honor the people who formed you. We honor them by giving everything we've got, whether we like it or not, <laughs> to whatever it is that God in Christ and the Spirit desires to do through us for the good of this community and this state, this nation, for all the nations. It is crucial for us to remember we have nothing that he hasn't given us. Take a look around. Everything our eyes fall upon us are gifts of God. The clothes we wear and the chairs we sit on, they don't belong to us, they belong to Jesus. And he calls upon his people 
say courage. To work. To work for what? To work for the Great Commission. To work for everything Jesus died to accomplish. With arms stretched wide and blood pouring down his wounded body. You want to know the passions of God, you look at the man on the cross. People don't die for things they don't care about. And Jesus died to reconcile us to God, not so that we could chill and hang and remember the good old days, but so that we could build on who has gone before to bring the gospel and the power of God to every nation. We want to come back after a crisis? You want to come back after a crisis? Re-engage the mission. Whether it's inside the walls, serving, in whatever capacity that involves, Maybe it's going back to what you did before. Maybe it's sliding into something else. Let me say this. Jesus is not looking for volunteers. He's looking for servants. I'd like us to get away from volunteer language, to be honest with you. Volunteer kind of has the feel of, you know, well, if I got some time, I'll help out. I'll volunteer my time. We say that sometimes, don't we? This project that Haggai's dealing with is not going to be accomplished by volunteers. It will only be accomplished by people who care more about the passions of God than they do the bruises and blisters on their hands. The mission that we have to be before us will not be accomplished by volunteers. It will only be accomplished by servants. Servants of the Most High God who give up, who make sacrifices for the sake of the passion of God and the renown of his name among the nations. That's why we call our serve teams serve teams, not volunteer teams. Jesus is not looking for volunteers. He's looking for people who will deny themselves and take up the cross and follow. We serve inside the walls. We serve outside the walls. We serve locally, friendship mission, first choice. And with God's grace, one day we'll serve internationally again. Whether it's Guatemala or somewhere else, and somewhere else, Uganda, and whatever other relationships the Lord sees fit to bring us into. The crucial thing, the common denominator in every instance, after the crisis, re-engage the mission. It won't feel the same as it did before. It didn't for Haggai. It didn't for the people he spoke to. It felt very different. They may have realized the only thing that never changes is that things are always changing. <laughs> 
Don't expect post-pandemic ministry to feel the same as it did before. The world doesn't feel the same, and it will never feel the same again. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Because God is a God who does new creation out of really big messes. Because the cross is not the last word, the resurrection is. Because when Jesus steps out of the tomb on Easter morning, he is God's first act of new creation. And when he returns, and every eye gazes upon him, and every knee bows to him, and the bodies of his people are raised from the grave, we will, with unveiled faces, see and experience the mysteries that he is working even now. But he's bringing us forward to that day. Jesus is always calling his people to remember what he has done. Broken body, shed blood. And to remember that he is coming again. Eyes on the future. Eyes on the coming of Jesus. The world shifts. The word of God is consistent. We talked about the temptation to go back. It's kind of an interesting temptation because it's not really possible regardless of how much we want it. <laughs> Has anybody successfully ever gone back? Anybody? I don't see any hands. Somebody's probably wanting to be stubborn and just do it just to mess with me. But like, we've never actually pulled that off. Right? We make movies about it, but we don't have the option. What we can do is remember what God has done before. What we can do is honor what God has done before. And the best way we honor what God has done before is by giving everything we've got to what he desires to do next. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org slash sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.